Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, 2018, um, a series of essays were published at uh, CNN.com by a man named David Allen, who is the editorial director of CNN's health and wellness division. And the essays were entitled The Wisdom Project. The Wisdom Project, where they looked at various elements of what they determined to be the good life. They sought to address those kinds of questions. And in one of these essays, David Allen makes the case that all men are inherently good. That all men are inherently good. He writes, quote, When we hear about bad things happening, especially when lives of many are lost or damaged at the hands of a few, we need to remind ourselves that people are generally good. We are hardwired for goodness. It's easier to recognize this fact when you think of children. (laughs) Sorry. Without mitigating factors, their innate goodness would not erode with age. But goodness is not the sole virtue of the young. The vast majority of people, when faced with simple, clear, ethical choices, choose good over bad and even good over neutral. Later, Allen continues by writing, quote, Empathy is an evolutionary gift, an instinct that extends in concentric circles from the self to loved ones to community to countries and for the enlightened, all of humanity. What do you think of Allen's statements? There's a lot I could say in response, but I'll limit it to two comments as we open up today. First, does Allen have children? Um, I remember hearing a friend one time tell a story about when he had a a two-year-old at the dinner table and the two-year-old kept grabbing the steak knife and he would tell his two-year-old son, don't grab the knife, it's not safe for you and he would set the knife just out of the two-year-old's reach and then he proceeded to watch the two-year-old stare with laser beam focus on the steak knife and slowly move his hand toward it again and again and again. Do we have to teach our children to disobey? No. We have to teach them rather to obey. My, my second comment. It's interesting that Allen argues, as many secular commentators do, by the way, that empathy, is, which is the act of placing yourself in someone else's shoes, having compassion on them, is an evolutionary gift. Um, considering that according to evolutionary theory, We've arrived at the top of the food chain because we've outwitted and outmaneuvered all of our natural opponents in the nonstop quest of survival of the fittest. Evolution is brutal. It's not empathetic at all. 
What this article does, among other things, is exemplify the following. In attempting to answer the question, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us and what is wrong with the world? There are really two possible answers. Our problem comes from outside of us or our problem comes from inside of us. Either mitigating factors, as Alan put it, make us do wrong things, or our propensity to do wrong things is inherent. The way we answer that question, you see, it matters deeply. It matters how you think about that question, no matter your current faith commitments, not least because it affects how we seek to repair what is wrong. There are many places in the Christian scriptures, in the Bible, in which we get a very clear view of the Christian position on the human condition. And Psalm 14 is one of those places. It takes an unflinching look at our condition and concludes with the rest of the scriptures that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We're in the middle of this summer teaching series called Songs for Summer. And as we're looking at different psalms each week and learning from the deep wisdom of this ancient catalog of poems and songs, uh, we're seeing that the psalms help us process our lives before God, the, the full range of our experiences and our emotions. But the psalms also help us process the world. That's what Psalm 14 does. It gives an account of the human condition, and it points us to the divine solution. So I want to look at it with you in three parts this morning. Humans' inherent antagonism, humans' universal, humanity's universal corruption, and third, humanity's only salvation. So first, humanity's inherent inherent, excuse me, antagonism. David begins, if you'll look at Psalm 14, with a very clear statement. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, verse 1. Now, David's not calling people names here. He's not saying, you're an idiot. The word fool is a technical term used very commonly in the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature. And the term is not used in the Bible as a function of intelligence or is a measure of IQ. In other words, fools can be brilliant and fools can be stupid. In fact, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which comes right after Psalms, says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. All of us have a latent foolishness to us according to the Bible. So what is foolishness if it's not a function of our intelligence or lack thereof? Foolishness is, according to the scriptures, a proud willfulness. It's a proud willfulness. It is a refusal to ever be a learner. Look at verse 4, where David says, Have they no knowledge? That can be translated, Will they never learn? That's why David says that the fool says, In his or her heart. In his or her heart that there is no God. Formal atheism, a denial of God's existence, listen, is not primarily an intellectual matter. It is an ethical one. 
It is something that flows from the heart, from our inherent antagonism against God, from our own inherent foolishness, stubborn willfulness. Atheism claims, as you may know, that we cannot furnish sufficient proof of God's existence, therefore there is no God. We respond as Christians with all due respect. It's not a lack of evidence that you struggle with as an atheist. It's that deep within your heart, you don't want there to be a God. The evidence for God is overwhelming. There are all manner of arguments that Christians much smarter than me throughout the ages have made. One of them, just as an example, is known as the teleological argument. The teleological argument. Think about it like this. If an explosion were to occur in an old-fashioned print shop where ink is put on books and books are printed, and the ink and the pages went flying everywhere as a result of the explosion, what are the odds that the way the ink lands on the pages is going to produce the play Hamlet? Now, you might say those odds are infinitesimal, and you would be right. But there's similar odds that this universe, with all of its perfect design for human existence, is a production of nothing but random forces. You see, it's our foolishness in our hearts that resists God's existence primarily, not our intellects. Another theologian once gave a quip in which he said that there are two principles of atheism. First, there is no God. Second, I hate him. First, there is no God. Second, I hate him. That's a critical piece to understanding the human condition. Our predisposition to reject God is not primarily intellectual and it's not primarily about evidence. It is moral. It's an issue of the hearts. We don't want there to be a God. The human condition is so warped by sin that we are all naturally bent against God. We're all opposed to him because we know deep down, actually, that there is a God and that we owe him our allegiance. And that's not just true for formal atheists. It's true of every single one of us, apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives through Jesus. We are all opposed to God by nature. We are all born fools. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want to be dependent. We want to be self-sufficient. We all love to sing the Frozen song, let it go. What are we letting go? Any constraint that's going to inhibit me in any way from being whoever the heck I want to be, no one's going to tell me otherwise. The Christian counselor and author Dan Allender uh, tells a, a story that I think makes this point well. He's talking about his first counseling appointment with a man who had set up to come and meet with him. And Allender walked through his offices and met this man at the front door. And as Allender was walking the man back through his, you know, lounge and offices to his study, the man looked around and said, you know, you've got all your computers wrong here. Uh, if you let me come fix it, I can, I can take care of it for you, no problem. And, and Allender was... Reminded of Proverbs 18.2, which says, A fool delights in airing his own opinions. And and then they sat down and began the counseling session. And and the man started by telling Allender, You know what I really hate? I hate it when people start to analyze me. What a great way to start a counseling session. 
I hate it when people start analyzing me and, and telling me how I need to change my life. And Allender was reminded of Proverbs 15.5, which says, A fool hates correction. And then they got into the subject, which was his deteriorating marriage. And the man continually insisted that the only problem in his marriage was that he'd let his wife get out of control. And, and he hadn't laid down the law sooner. And Allender was reminded of Proverbs twelve fifteen, which says, The fool thinks he's right all the time. Can you see yourself in David's analysis of the human condition? Only Jesus and his grace can get our foolishness out. And listen, some of you are in complete denial that you are a fool. The main way you can know it is if you don't think anything I've said so far applies to you at all. Others need to know they're fools, but I don't. In fact, you can't think of anything you really need to learn today from the Spirit speaking to you through the Scriptures. Our innate foolishness, never thinking we need to learn or we need to change or we need to be humble, never thinking we might be wrong is so hard for us to see because we're all self-deceived by sin. If you come here week after week in anything other than a posture of neediness, you're a fool in need of a corrected self-understanding. And it is God's love that gives you texts and that gives me texts like Psalm 14 to pierce us with the reality of our condition. Then we can really get help. We see first humanity's inherent antagonism. Second, we see humanity's universal corruption. Look back in Psalm 14. David goes further. Verse 1, there is none who does good. Verse 2, the Lord looks down on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Do you see the universal language David uses here? All of us, he says, are characterized by a failure to do good, a failure to seek after God, humanity has universal corruption. There are no exceptions. Our heart opposition to God's loving rule, sin, has universally corrupted every human who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible, whether we like it or not, is incredibly clear on this point. Because of sin's power, none of us no matter how religious or irreligious we are, is naturally good. Quite the opposite, in fact. And it's been this way since the beginning of time. Way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, even before the flood, when things are in complete disarray, we read in Genesis 6 that God looked down from the heavens and said, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intentions of his thought, his heart was only evil continually. Again, Genesis 18 and 19, when God tells Abraham, because of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness, I'm about to wipe them out. Abraham says, don't do that, Lord. Listen, God, if I can find 50 good guys in Sodom, will you spare the city? God says, I'll spare the city. And Abraham's like, how about 45? How about 35? How about 25? How about 
10. And God, every time, says, For ten righteous people, I will not destroy the city. But there aren't ten. There aren't any. Now, some of you, I'm sensitive to this, might think that this is going too far. This is an exaggeration. How can we say that there is none who does good, Pastor? When it's obvious that many people of all types of religious affiliations and commitments do all kinds of good things every day. That's a fair point, by the way. Totally fair point. And I think it's important to remember in response that when the Bible, in places like Psalm 14, talks about our universal corruption, it's not really interested in comparing people to one another. In other words, the standard for what is good is much higher than any of us might think. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When asked, how can we keep the commandments? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The standard is full obedience to God, full adherence to his will, and everyone fails in this. Everyone. Moral and immoral people Religious and irreligious people. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in Romans when he writes, All, both Jews and Greeks, are alike under sin. Now, listen, that's not to say, that's not to say that there aren't some people in the world who do good who are not Christians. In fact, many non-Christian people do a lot more good than many Christian people. But no one does good in the sense in which God defines good. Serving him and others with a completely pure heart. Living totally for the glory of God. No one does that. Which means something very important for all of you to grasp. We are all in the same boat. The Bible completely levels the playing field. On our best days even. All of us are bent towards self-seeking and self-serving. Imagine that there's three people that are required to swim from Hawaii to Japan. And the first guy doesn't know how to swim. He makes it 30 feet, drowns. The second guy is in pretty decent shape. He's done some swimming in his backyard pool when it's 183 degrees in South Texas. And uh, he swims three miles and then drowns and dies. And the third guy is an Olympian world champion swimmer. He makes it 30 miles, and then he drowns and dies. But none of them even made it a fraction of the way to Japan, and none of them is any more drowned than any of the others. Similarly, religious people might be better morally than others, but neither they nor anyone else come close to what God calls a righteous heart. So we're all lost. We're all condemned to perish. Sin is universal. And its final impact, it separates every single one of us from the living and loving God. Listen, listen to me. Have you ever been convicted by the Holy Spirit to it that this is your condition apart from Jesus? That sort of conviction is a prerequisite 
to experiencing God's power to change you. A prerequisite is an honest assessment and recognition of your corruption, your foolishness, your sin. It requires reading verse 1, there is none who does good, and saying to yourself, man, that's me. I'm, I'm like that. I'm that selfish. I'm that broken by sin. It requires reading verse 2. Are there any who seek after God? And again, saying to yourself, that's me too. I don't seek God. I seek myself. My main priority is my own life and my own happiness. God has not really been in the picture for me. It makes sense to me that I stand under his condemnation. I deserve it. I've done nothing but reject him and offend him my entire life. Listen, that kind of encounter with your own sin and guilt, your own black heart, is what prepares you to really know and experience the thing that God most wants to grant His forgiving grace. If you don't think you're needy, you are in the wrong building. If you don't see the depth of your folly and brokenness, you have not yet woken up to what the Christian faith is all about. You cannot get good news if you don't believe the bad news. You cannot believe... That Jesus saves you if you don't really think you need saving, especially when compared to your neighbor who lets his long get too, too young, to your wife who's always bickering and getting mad at you, to your coworker who doesn't do nearly as good a job of you. you. You cannot see God's love if you don't see your own folly. But thankfully, there are texts in the Bible that show us the reality of the human condition, but they don't stop there. They take us to the only solution, which is where we go last. Let me close you with this. Humanity's only salvation. David gives a stark assessment here, doesn't he? He asks for God, verses 4 through 6, to rescue his people from the evil of man. And then he ends the psalm with a prayer. With, with really a cry of hope, he says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, to understand this verse, and really to understand so many of the Psalms, you have to understand Zion. We saw Zion last week, too, in Psalm 126. And I said last week that it's another name, Zion, for God's dwelling place. And it eventually, in later books in the Old Testament, becomes a synonym, really, for God's people. Technically, Zion was one of the hills that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And upon Mount Zion, first the tabernacle and later the temple were built. So when David hopes here that salvation, forgiveness of sins for those who reject and turn away from God, will come out of Zion, he's thinking about the primary spiritual principle that the temple pictured. And that is this, God cannot dwell with the sinful people, with fools, unless atonement is made for them. That was the entire point of the Old Testament sacrifices of which the tabernacle and the temple later were the centerpiece. No one can approach a holy God in our sin and corruption and foolishness unless forgiveness and pardon is made. So animals were sacrificed and blood was shed to symbolize the penalty of sin, which is death. 
and to say that this is being paid so that we might have access to the presence of a righteous God, a God of life and light. So given that, isn't it interesting that hundreds of years after this psalm, when Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene, he calls himself the temple. In John 2, Jesus is walking through the city and he looks at the temple and he says to the religious leaders surrounding him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And and the Jews are like, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it in three days? Who do you think you are? And then John inserts this little statement in John 2, 21. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Listen, do you see? This is the heart of the psalm. This is the heart of the entire Christian faith. In the wisdom of God, he gave himself for fools. He sends his son, Jesus, to be the final sacrifice, the final priest, the final temple to both deal with sin in perfect justice, to right the wrong that our sin and foolishness are, and to offer a gracious pardon to fools like us who are so bogged down in sin that there's no other way out. Our only salvation is in Jesus' body and Jesus' blood and Jesus' death and resurrection. Interestingly enough, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, we read that the cross of Jesus is what? Foolishness. It is folly to those who are perishing. But to those for whom the gospel is an aroma of life, it is the wisdom of God, the divine answer to the human condition. Not really a spoiler alert, but David Allen of CNN.com has it all wrong. We are not inherently good. In fact, all of us alike are corrupt. All of us are like our fools. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. But God has come to us in Jesus. And through his atoning death has made a way for us to be purified and justified from the inside out, from the heart In the crucifixion of Jesus' body, justice is meted out on the evil of sin and grace is offered to sinners, to any who who will come, to any who will believe, to any who will trust. God calls you to Zion to see how great his love and mercy are, to come to the new temple, to trust in the final sacrifice, to rest in the love of Jesus Christ whose grace covers all of our foolishness and failure.